Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, and we're going to re, uh, re- return to the high priestly prayer of Christ. We started it just a couple weeks ago, and um, I was uh, praying with the elders this morning, and one of our elders was just praying and saying, Lord, help Ken as he's going to be preaching on the greatest prayer in the Bible, the greatest chapter in the Bible. I'm like, okay, knock it off already, okay? You're, you're no pressure, right? Um, but uh, this truly is uh, the greatest prayer uh, that Christ, uh, that we have recorded uh, in the scripture that Christ prayed. And uh, it, is, it is definitely uh, right up there with uh, some of the greatest uh, texts in all the word of God. And so just to get it back into our minds, let's read it together. John chapter 17, and uh, we'll just read through verse 19 uh, this morning for the sake of time. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I asked on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them." I'm no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I, don't ask, I do not ask you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge our absolute dependence upon you to understand any text from your word, but particularly this text, which is really a profound Uh, mystery as we are are given the privilege of sitting in, listening in on a conversation between uh, you and your son while he was on earth. And Lord, this is indeed holy ground, and you're our holy father, even as Jesus prayed in this text. And so we ask that you would 
Help us to come before you with clean hands and, and clean hearts. And Lord, that you would uh, open up our eyes to see wonderful things uh, in your word today. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's nothing more encouraging, uh, more comforting that we can do for someone who is in a frightened or weakened or depressed or confused state than to intercede for them in their presence. I'm sure all of us can testify of how God used other people's prayers uh, on, on our behalf uh, to strengthen us, to reassure us during some difficult time in our lives when we were experiencing some sort of fear or anxiety or sorrow or, or pain. And while we, we truly appreciate people's gracious acts of kindness and they might bring a meal by the house or come over and clean our house or do something like give us a, a ride where we need to go, we appreciate those gracious acts of kindness and, and we, we really appreciate the wise words of counsel when people sit, sit with us and they open up God's word with us and they share principles and they remind us of things and encourage us with things. But, but the one thing that ministers to us, ministers to us the most is the ministry of intercession. Hearing someone pray for us has a way of ministering to our hearts, I think, more than anything else. Wouldn't you agree? More than having someone, again, provide a meal or read scripture or sit and talk with us, just be there and listen. It's, it's listening to them pray for us. And I think that's why Jesus ended his time with his disciples in the, un, in the upper room, by, by praying for them, interceding for them. He, he knew that nothing that he said or did in the upper room would encourage and strengthen them more than having them hear him pray for them. He had already graciously served them, if you remember, by washing their feet. He'd wisely instructed them and counseled them throughout that evening, but the last thing he did for them before he left them to go to the cross was to pray for them out loud. Some people wonder where, how John came to be the only gospel writer who included this prayer and how did he get this prayer? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. He was sitting right there. He heard the whole thing live in color. And the Spirit of God gave him recollection of that as he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit his gospel that this was brought back to his remembrance by the Spirit. We know that earlier this evening, Jesus had revealed to his disciples that he was about to leave them and return to heaven, but he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them, to guide them into all truth, to empower them, to carry on uh, the mission. Um, nevertheless, the disciples were sad. Um, as we would be if we were them. They were frightened. Uh, they were confused. Why? Because they had grown to depend on Jesus as their teacher, as their provider, as their protector, and now he would no longer be with them. And that's why Jesus spent so much time with them in the upper room, uh, comforting them, reassuring them that he would continue to love them, he would continue to take care of them after he returned to heaven. And so after having equipped them for what was to come in, in the hours and weeks and, and months that lie ahead after he was gone, he then entrusted them to God the Father through prayer. It's as if he got to the end of the upper room, his time in the upper room, and before he left to go to the garden, he goes to him and he said, okay, now let's close in prayer. Very appropriate way to finish uh, such an epic time together uh, with his disciples. 
And, and, and this is truly an epic prayer, as I mentioned, only recorded here in the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus, in this prayer, asked the Father to ensure that all the promises that He had just made to them would be fulfilled. And also, He asked the Father to empower them to complete the mission that He was about to entrust to them. But what we must not fail to see that in this prayer, Jesus also exemplified what his future ministry of intercession would be like after he returned to heaven and was reseated, if you will, at the right hand of the Father. And, and the reason this beloved chapter is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer is because of its natural connection with all the other passages in the New Testament that talk about Christ's ministry in heaven as our great high priest at the right hand of God the Father. You can write down some verses, Romans 8, 34. Um, Hebrews really talks the most about the high priestly ministry of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 25. But what we learn from the book of Hebrews is that after Jesus died and he rose again and ascended back to heaven, we know that he sat down at the right hand of God to symbolize that his work of redemption was what? It was completed. It was done. It is finished. No other sacrifices were needed to atone for sin. And as that high priest in the Old Testament never sat down, he always had work to be done. Because there was, a, there was always needed to be a perpetual sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. And, and, and Jesus said, my work's done. One and done. Dying across, it's over. I can sit down. But that didn't mean that he stopped ministering on, on our behalf. His work of inter- intercession had just begun. And so as the risen, exalted Lamb of God, Jesus serves right now in heaven as our mediator and advocate before the Father. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I don't know how much you think about the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. I know most of us tend to think about what Jesus has already done for us when he was here on earth on the cross, and, and we're very grateful for that, but how often do we think about what he's doing right now and how he's ministering on our behalf right this second? As I was studying this passage, um, in the midst of my study, I was talking to one of our elders and we were talking about a heartbreaking situation where uh, a pastor had disqualified himself from, from ministry, and we were talking about how does that happen? What, what's the dynamic there that, that goes on in a pastor's heart where uh, he basically gives in to the very sins that he preaches against or that he counsels others and helps others with, and then he succumbs to the same things? Well, what's going on there? And we, we, we talked about how probably part of that dynamic is, is you get to be a sermon factory as a pastor sometimes, and you just, start, you just all you're doing is just, you're just cranking out sermons, and, and they're kind of just going through your mind and out your mouth and not ever passing through your own heart. 
And, and there's not an opportunity oftentimes because you're so busy to really meditate on the scriptures and say, okay, what does this passage mean to me? I know what it says, and, I, and I've got an outline that I'm going to preach this Sunday to the, to the congregation that God's entrusted in my care, but what is this thing, how is this sucker changing my life? And so I prayed before this text, before I studied this week, and I said, Lord, I need to see something in here that, that's for me. I don't want to just crank out another sermon uh, and come up with another outline and another sheet for these people to look at while I'm preaching through it. And, 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 and the, the thing, again, this, this may not be profound to you, but it, was, it has been profound for me this week, to think that this entire time that I was studying this text, and, and no matter what I was doing uh, throughout this week, that Jesus was praying for me the entire time. And even as recently as last night, in the midst of writing a sermon, being tempted to do something that I knew would dishonor the Lord... And the thing that kept me from giving into that temptation was thinking about the fact that Jesus was praying for me right now that I would stand firm and not give in the temptation. I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, do we start thinking about the present, ongoing, mediatorial work of intercession in heaven for us on a regular, daily basis? One commentator said this, that Christ's mediatorial work of intercession is as real and indispensable as his work of atonement. Did you hear that? The, 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 the intercession of Christ, what we're talking about here, is as real and indispensable as his work of atonement. It was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave believers eternal life. It is his intercessory work for them that sustains that life, bringing them from justification through sanctification to glorification. In other words, Christ's present work of intercession in heaven is no less important than Christ's past work of redemption on earth. Think about that. So what, what are, we, are we really saying that, that, that what Christ did on the cross, right? Typically, well, that's the most important thing Jesus is. Well, what we're saying is, hey, what he did, what he's doing on his throne right now is just as important what he did on the cross. That it's a package deal. This is the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Past, present, on earth, in heaven. And if we ever wondered, well, okay, I get that, that Jesus is praying for me, but that's just kind of weird to think about. What does he pray for? I mean, what, what would it be like to, to kind of hear what, what he would pray for? Well, I guess, I, I tell you, it would sound a whole lot like John 17. And so we get to peek into heaven, if you will, when we read and study John 17. And, and that's why this chapter is considered by some to be the holy of holies of sacred scripture. Because we're, we're given this, this, this unbelievable privilege of listening in to this intimate conversation between the two members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son, as they, they're discussing the outworking of the eternal plan of salvation. And as we're kind of got our ear to the door, if you will, and we're, we're listening, we're, we're eavesdropping, and then all of a sudden, our name comes up. But they mention your name. They mention my name. And that's what's so breathtaking about this is that our name comes up there. They're talking about how we fit into their plan. Wow. And, and, and we know it's a huge encouragement when 
people tell us they're praying for us, but how much more encouraging should it be, right, when we have this great and glorious high priest in heaven who's continuously praying for us? I mean, this should, this should spur us on knowing that, it, that it's Christ's prayer ultimately on our behalf that enables us to be victorious in our Christian lives. And again, the context, remember chapter 16, verse 33, this is what this is the last thing Jesus said before he said, let's pray. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And that is a proclamation of victory. And so here Jesus goes into prayer. And really he's, this prayer is what ensured the survival of this tiny band of faltering followers, as one commentator said. And we see how he, he prays really uh, in three phases here. You, you could divide this prayer into three sections. He, he, Christ begins by praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. We looked at that last time uh, where Jesus began praying that the Father would glorify him as he finished the work which he had sent him to do. And then in verses 6 through 19, he, he prays for his disciples, the, the men that were there in the upper room. And then in verses 20 through 26, which we didn't read this morning, he prays for all believers of all times, his church. And, um, and we're going to see that verses 6 through 26 really all go together, that, that I have a hard time distinguishing between his disciples and us today, because we're all disciples of Jesus Christ, we're all followers of Christ, and so I'm gonna, I've chosen to take all of this together, chapter, or verses 6 through 26 is all together, uh, talking about his followers, his disciples, but we're going to see how he prays for his disciples, uh, prays for you, prays for me as followers of Christ, in light of the strategic role that, that we play in the completion of Christ's work. And so... In the remainder of this high priestly prayer, I want to just point out to you six prayer requests, six prayer requests for his followers that reveal his six priorities for his followers. So what, what does Jesus specifically pray for? Well, there are six things here on his prayer list, at least six, there may be more, depending on how you divide it up, but I see at least six prayer requests, six requests on Jesus' prayer list for you and for me. In other words, these are the six things that he desires most for our lives as his followers. I mean, you know this to be true, there's no better way to get to know someone's heart, to, to find out what they're passionate about, than to listen to them pray. I mean, if someone were to listen to you pray... Your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, your, maybe the people in your grow group, your small group. When people listen to you pray, what do they conclude is most important to you? What do they conclude that you're most passionate about? Right? That's, that's, there's no greater insight into our hearts than, than listening to one another pray. And so we get a, with some insight into the heart of Christ here. What, what is Jesus most passionate about? What does he want most for you and for me and our church? Let's make it real practical, okay? Well, first of all, he prays for comprehension or reception, being able to understand him, his message, and the ability to receive the message. Now, uh, I'm admitting here that this uh, first request is, is more implied than directly stated. This is more for the sake of a, a neat outline for preaching, okay? Um, because really, the request 
don't actually begin until verse 11. Um, and you say, well, what is verses 6 through 10? Well, basically, Jesus is describing the subjects of his prayer. He's talking to the Father about us. Um, and, and he's expressing the reasons why he was so confident that the Father would fulfill the promises that he had made to his disciples in the preceding chapters, chapters 13 through 16, and, and why he would answer the request that he was about to make on their behalf in the following verses. But notice, it's all about comprehension. It's all about reception here. Verse 6, it says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus is simply saying, I've revealed and displayed, I've showed my disciples what God the Father is like. I've showed them what you're like, Dad. John chapter 1, verse 14, this is how the gospel begins. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus is saying, hey, Dad, I, 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 I showed him who you're, what you're like. And, and notice he says, he talks about the name. He says, I've manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. We see this. Uh, this word or this uh, concept of name uh, in these first few verses, uh, what is that all about? Well, we know that names in scriptures mean something. They they represent a a person's true nature. They reveal their character. They reveal their attributes. Oftentimes, uh, a person was given a particular name in scripture to reveal or emphasize something special uh, or important about who they would be or what they would do. In the Old Testament, we know God revealed himself to the people of Israel with a a myriad of different names, each of which teaches something important or different about who he is or what he does. And so basically he's saying, listen, I revealed you to them, your character, your attributes, who you are, what you are like. And notice he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. We touched on this last time. Uh, five times in this prayer, Jesus referred to, to, to us, his disciples, as those the Father had given him. Verse 2, even as you gave authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given me, he may give eternal life. Verse 9, he says it again, I ask on their behalf, I didn't ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with them where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. So, so there's, this is definitely an emphasis. This is something that's on the heart of Christ as he's communing with his Father. He, he's, he's reminding the Father that, hey, these are the, these are the folks, I'm praying for the folks, uh, we're talking about the folks here, I'm interceding for the folks that you gave me. This is, the, this is the group of people that you chose before the foundation of the earth to give to me as a gift of love. From a father's heart to a son, here is, here is your bride, son. And this is a precious, profound concept. We, we often think about Christ being God's love gift to us. The emphasis, we see that in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here, it's a different concept in that 
that, that we are a loved gift from God to Jesus. I don't know how, we, we probably don't think about this as much as we, we, we should, but uh, again, John chapter 6, verse 37, this is what Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then, of course, John chapter 10, the great passage on eternal security, how you can't lose your salvation. Uh, John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So from a human perspective, right, we, we receive the gift of eternal life when we repent of our sin and we place our faith in Christ. That's from a human perspective. But from God's perspective, from a theological perspective, we have been sovereignly chosen by the Father in eternity past and gifted to the Son. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. And the Father sent His Son to earth to secure our salvation By dying in our place on the cross, and the moment we repent and believe, He grants us eternal life. And the fact that His disciples received Jesus and obeyed His teaching was evidence that they had been set apart from the rest of the world and belonged to Him. That they were part of this love gift, this group of people that God had sovereignly ordained to give to to His Son. Some people kind of get wrapped around the axle with this whole doctrine of election, because that's really what we're talking about here. And they're like, well, how do, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? Well, forget about it. Repent and believe. That's all you need to know. Forget about, you know, don't contemplate your navel trying to figure out, yeah, am I one of God's elect? You know, looking for the E on your back or something. I can't, I can't see back there. Do I got an E painted on my back or not? Forget about it. The Bible calls you to repent and believe the gospel. And guess what? If you repent and believe the gospel, that's evidence that you're one of God's elect. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't try to figure out election before you, you, you deal with salvation, right? You need to get saved. Election is something you, you figure out afterwards. It's kind of like the family secret, right? All you need to know is the Bible says whosoever will may come, right, to get into heaven. I'm like, good, I'm going for it. I'm going to call out in the name of the Lord and be saved. I'm coming in. And and, and you get into heaven, you're like, wow, wow, this is amazing. And somebody hits you and say, turn around. And you're like, what, what? You turn around and there it is on the doorway of heaven. On the inside, it says chosen before the foundation of the earth. You're like, whoa. You didn't know that up until that point. All you knew, you needed, you were a sinner who was going to hell. Jesus died on the cross for you. You need to repent of your sin. You need to believe the gospel, put your hope in him alone. You did that. You made that decision, right? From a human perspective, you walk through the door. You, you enter, you, 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 you're born again. You have eternal life. Then you start reading your Bible and you're like, whoa. Wow, that's amazing. You're telling me before I was ever even born, that before the world was even born, way back in eternity past, God chose me to give to his son as a special gift because he loves him so much. My wife was cute last week. She, we were talking about after 
or two couple weeks ago when we talked about this, what, what did you get most out of the sermon? And, and she said, man, I was just really blown away by this concept that, that, that I'm a love gift from God, the Father, to the Son. She goes, I feel like more of a white elephant gift. <laughs> I mean, uh, come on, right? I mean, w- w- are you kidding me? This is all you can come up with to give to your son is me? And that's why it said, just blow us away and go, wow, God, this is amazing grace. How did I get caught up into this amazing plan of salvation and redemption? I'm so unworthy, so undeserving. Interesting, in the book of Acts, Acts 18, verse 10, Paul was going to, was uh, God wanting to encourage the apostle Paul, because whenever he went to a city, things got rough really quick. And, and, and oftentimes he had to just get out of there as fast as he could before he got killed. Acts chapter 18, verse 10 he says, uh, God says to him in the night, in the vision, he says, do not be afraid any longer, but go, go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Do, 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 do. Right? It's kind of like Twilight Zone. Like you got these people in, uh, that are, you got God's elect in the city of Corinth and Paul doesn't know who they are. But, but God was just reassuring him, hey, buddy, just keep preaching because I got some people here that, that, that I've chosen for salvation and they need to hear the gospel. So you just keep right on preaching. So Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. In other words, they, they've obeyed. They received me and they're obeying me. They're doing what I'm telling them to do. Now, just because they belong to him doesn't mean that they instantly and completely got it. And they're still trying to figure this thing out. I mean, they, they were just fighting over who's going to sit on his right and left hand. Remember that? They, they're still thinking he's going to set, set his kingdom up in Jerusalem. So they didn't instantly and completely comprehend everything there was to know about Christ, nor did they perfectly obey him. And yet, in spite of all their sins and failures, notice here how Jesus praised them before the Father for receiving and obeying his message through him. Even though they were about to what? Jesus knew that they were about to what? In just a matter of hours, what were they going to do? They were going to all forsake him. They were going to scatter for fear of their lives. And even though he knew that they were about to forsake him, he commended them before the Father. It made me wonder what Jesus prays, how he represents me before the Father, even when I'm such a mess up. (laughs) I don't fully get everything there is to get about Christ and his word, and obviously I don't perfectly obey him, not even close. And I have all sorts of sins and failures and mess-ups, and there's times I forsake him, and, and yet if he's commending his disciples, these, this, this ragtag group of knuckleheads that are about to abandon him, literally abandon him, he's commending them to the Father, how do you think that conversation goes right now, today? When you mess up and, oh, gee, he's mad at me, uh, he's, he's probably put his head down. He's probably like, yeah, he did it again, God. I'm, I'm really sorry. I know he makes me look bad. I, I don't think that's what's going on. 
I think, I think it's, again, we're getting into the mystery of the Godhead here, and I don't want to go beyond what, what is written, but I, I just had to pause and think about the fact that even when I don't obey perfectly, that, that Christ continues to commend me to the Father as his own. That, yeah, I know he's a knucklehead, I know he's a mess up, but you know what? His blood's all over. My blood's all over him. My blood covers that. Verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. So again, Jesus is, is, is simply saying that he perfectly represented, reflected the Father to his disciples, and that they, they realized that he was more than just an, an, another charismatic leader with, with some good ideas, some revolutionary plans. Uh, no, they believed that he was on a divine mission in obedience to the Father's will. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, do not ask, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. Now, don't assume here, based on what Jesus said, that he doesn't pray for the world. Like, I ain't got no time for them. I only pray for my people, right? No, I, I believe that, that Christ has compassion on unbelievers and prays for them. We, we know that from his example uh, when he was here on earth in Luke chapter 13 as he was entering Jerusalem. Remember what he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that center. How often I've wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. I, you say, well, was he, who was he talking to God about that or was he talking to the, the Israelites about that? He, he was pouring out his compassion. How about on the cross? Luke chapter 23, verse 34, when he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Who's them? It wasn't his disciples. It was everybody, the, the, the religious leaders and, and, and the Roman uh, authorities and, and soldiers. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. They're, they're sinning against me. They're killing me in ignorance. So, I guess that's for another discussion. Does God listen to and answer prayers of unbelievers? Um, does Christ in any way intercede for un- unbelievers? The, 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 the point of this text is that his heavenly role, in his heavenly role as our great high priest before the throne of God the Father, he only represents and only intercedes for believers who he has set apart from the rest of the world to be a witness to the world. That we are his ambassadors, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are Christ's ambassadors. And in verse 10, I love this, and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine. It sounds like a married couple a little bit, right? What's mine is yours and what, what's yours is mine, or I don't know how that works. But some, the point is, it's all your stuff, right? It's not like part of it's yours, part of it's yours. No, it's, it's, it's all, why? You're talking about the, the unity uh, here, and, and really this is another reference to Christ's deity, that he enjoyed perfect unity and equality with the Father. The only way that Jesus could have said this is if he was God. And ultimately, don't miss this, we belong to the Father who owns us by virtue of creation and election, and he entrusted us to Jesus as his bride. 
And we bring glory to Christ by hoping in Christ, or I should say we bring glory to God the Father by hoping in Christ, placing our faith in Christ. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, that uh, when we hope in Christ, it brings glory to God to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory, God's glory. So what's going on here in these first few verses, verses 6 through 10, I just think an amazing thought here that, that even though we may falter and fail, which we do, Christ is still glorified when we understand and receive Him and we seek to live our lives in obedience to His Word. He's glorified. And, and Christ is gracious and and, and hopefully, again, just because He's gracious to us before the Father, uh, when He intercedes for us and He's our advocate, it's not like, well, hey, you know what? I can get away with anything. Because whatever I do, it's covered by the blood, and Jesus is going to stick up, with, stick up for me in the presence of the Father. Well, if that's your heart, then you don't get it. Because you would never want to do anything that would bring shame or dishonor upon Christ or break His heart, right? You want Him to be proud of you, if you will. Um, and so, hopefully this doesn't give us any reason to think, well, hey, so I'm just going to keep on sinning so that grace may abound. So Jesus can just get all the glory as our great high priest who covers our sins. No, may it never be. And so there's the prayer for comprehension here or reception. And then secondly, and, and this is really the, uh, a specific um, prayer request, and that is for protection or preservation. Protection or preservation. Notice verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Notice here Jesus said, I am no longer in the world. We were like, uh, hello, you're in the upper room with the disciples. You're still on planet Earth. What are you talking about? Well, he was speaking of his resurrection and his return to heaven as if it already happened. It was a done deal. He, he prayed like he's already gone. That's how confident he was about this thing was going down the way it was going to go down. And, and the, 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 I think the operative word here uh, in this particular section of this prayer is the word world, world, used 18 times in this prayer, and uh, what he's saying here, he was about to leave the world, but his disciples would be left here in the world to carry on his mission of spreading the good news of salvation through his death and resurrection, and Jesus, he's saying to the Father, Dad, I, I watched over them and I guarded them as the treasure that you had entrusted that me to, to, to take care of. And I did that, but now I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm coming back to be with you. And, 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 and I pray that, 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 that while I can no longer be with them here on this earth to watch over them, I pray that you would watch over them and that you would protect them. He knew the hostility against him would now fall on his disciples. And the only way that they would be able to, to survive is if they, they had the Heavenly Father's protection, but also that they were one. 
that they remain unified. Notice it says that they may be one even as we are one. It's like the three musketeers, right? One for all, all for one, one all for one, one for all, whatever. However that goes, you, you get it, right? We're, we're together, we're a team, we, we stand back to back and we fight together. He says, I want them to be one even as we are one. So the prayer here is for unity. We're not going to get into it this morning because I'm going to wait till we get to verses 21 and 22 where he really expands on this request for unity. Verse 21, that they may all be one even as the Father are in me and I in you that also uh, they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. The point is that the unity within the body of Christ should reflect the unity within the Trinity. Do you ever think the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have a hard time getting along? I don't think so. So why do we have such a hard time getting along? Because we're not one. We're not truly unified. And so the same way the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have a close relationship and they enjoy intimate communion with each other, we as believers should be cultivating close relationships and intimate communion with one another so that we don't get sideways with one another. The point is this, that, that God designed us not to just get by and survive. No, He... he ordained, he intended that we would grow and thrive together within the body of Christ. He put us together for a reason. We need each other. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says that we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, uh, but all the more encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. Why, why do we need to be together? Because we need to be encouraged. Why do we need to be encouraged? Well, he says it earlier in Hebrews, exactly why. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. All of us have the propensity to allow our hearts to be hardened by the seethal of sin. That's why we need this thing right here. Aren't you glad God ordained Sunday, the Lord's Day, a weekly uh, checkup, if you will, a weekly opportunity to be around uh, other believers who can encourage us and stimulate us and hold us accountable? Why is that? Why, why do we need that? Because we've got some formidable foes. We've got some powerful enemies We've got the flesh, sin here he's talking about, the world, we've got the devil, and so Jesus is praying for, for our protection against all of these. He says, keep them in your name, guard them. He says, I've guarded them, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Listen, the fact that Judas, one of Christ's very own inner circle, turned away from Christ to do the will of the devil, if that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is. That's a wake-up call. 
That, that is sobering proof of how powerful, how influential the devil really is. That if you're not the real deal, as a Christian, he could pluck you out of this place in a heartbeat if he wanted. And that was the issue with, with Judas. He was the son of perdition, as it's called, literally the son of destruction or damnation. This phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament and refers to the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And so, what are we to do with this Judas who was the son of perdition so that the scriptures would be fulfilled? Even though Judas was destined to betray Christ and it was even foreordained in scripture that he would uh, betray Christ, that doesn't mean that he didn't have a choice in the matter. I, I would put him in the same category of, as the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter confronted the, the Jews for, for killing the Messiah, for murdering Jesus. And this is what he said, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He goes on in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 28. Father, you have the, they're praying to the Lord. He says to do to do, do, do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Talking about the persecution and the things that are going on here, that, that he predestined these things to occur. So what, what's the point here? Did, did the Israelites, were the Israelites still held accountable for killing Jesus, even though it's foreordained by the Lord, predestined by the Lord that that would happen? That's how he would be killed? Are they still held responsible and accountable by God? Absolutely. The, the point is that Judas was a willing servant of Satan whose wicked heart was really just served as, as fertile, uh, a fertile environment for Satan to spawn his evil plot. You say, so what's up with Judas? What category do we put him in? Well, just listen to the scriptures. You, you, you tell me. John chapter 6, verse 70 Jesus answered and said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, is going to betray him. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? He sounds like a real spiritual guy, like, hey, that was a poor stewardship of our resources, now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. He was embezzling from the treasury. Chapter 13, verse 2, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and then verse 27 here at the beginning of the upper room account, after the morsel Satan then entered into him, therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Listen, Judas is not an example of a believer who lost his salvation. He's an example of a professing believer who was never truly saved to begin with. And again, we just have to go back through the Gospel of John and we see it's very clear what category to put Judas in. John, John chapter 6, verse 64 he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it, and who it was that would betray him. In other words, you're all looking like believers, you're all acting like believers, you're all saying you're believers, you're all following me around like you're a believer, but not all you're believers. Some of you don't believe, don't really believe. Again, chapter 13, verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. That's when he was washing the disciples' feet. In other words, he hasn't been cleansed from his sins like the rest of you guys, i.e. he's not saved. Verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. In other words, Judas was not one of the elect. He was not one who God had chosen. And then, and then look at chapter 18. This is interesting. We're going to get here just in a few weeks. But this is what happened after they left the upper room and they went down into the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas betrayed Jesus. And notice what it says here in verses 8 and 9. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way, talking about the other disciples, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you've given me, I lost not one. Going back to this concept of God giving, the Father giving to the Son, a certain group of people to be his bride, guess what? Judas wasn't one of them. Why? Because he lost them. Why did he lose them? He says, because you, you didn't give them to me. But I didn't, lost, I didn't lose anyone else. First John 2.19, I think, gives us the best commentary on Judas's life and death. John, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really, what, of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Don't be shocked, beloved, when someone from this flock disappears. And you're like, hey, where'd that person go? I haven't seen them for a while. And, um, I mean, sometimes it's legitimate. They move, they, they go to another church or whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about people that just drop off the radar and they're not going to any church at all. And, obviously, the jury's out. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They're claiming to be Christians, but it very well could be that they were never one of us to begin with. And so what do we do? Do we just forget about them? No, we go and share the gospel. <laughs> we love them and preach the truth. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Again, Jesus explained why he was praying in the presence of the disciples. I mean, why was he letting them hear this prayer? He was about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, hey, stay here, and I'm going to go off and pray. I don't know that they heard the anguish of his soul in the garden. In fact, we know they didn't because they were sleeping. He didn't necessarily want them to hear that prayer, but he definitely wanted them to hear this prayer. Why? He wanted them to rejoice in knowing that he would be continuously praying for them in heaven, and he wanted them to know what he would be praying. 
And despite all the pressures and the temptations that we face in this world, it it should bring us great comfort and joy knowing that Jesus is constantly interceding for us and he's specifically praying that we will experience the same joy that he experienced when he was here in this world in spite of all the difficulties and stresses that he labored under while he was here on this earth. That we would maintain our joy. Uh, John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you so that you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus cares about our joy. He wants us to be joyful. You could almost add this as almost a, another prayer request. You could add this to Jesus' prayer list is, is jubilation, that he wants us to rejoice. He's praying right now that we would rejoice, that we would have joy in the midst of our trials and, and persecutions and, and tribulations, that we would have joy. He's praying for us right now that we would have joy. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they were not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We know Jesus already warned them that the world would hate them, just like they hated him back in chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And, and listen, this is what Jesus is saying here. That the, the more committed that we are to Christ, the more committed the world will be in opposing us. So if you're not, really not that committed to Christ, you're not going to have to deal with that much persecution. Not, you're not going to have to deal with too much pushback from the world. But when you, when you get radical for Christ, it's coming. It's coming. The more accurately we reflect Christ, the more aggressively the world will reject us. Why? Because the world despises Christians. Because our passion for Christ exposes their their passions and pursuits as nothing more than a bunch of poop. You're like, where did you get that from? Philippians chapter 3 Verse 8, I count all things as loss to the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's what Paul said. And that word there, I count all things to be loss. In view of, uh, I, I, he said, I count them but rubbish so that I may be, gain Christ. That's the word scubalon in the Greek. It means poop. And so we're, we're saying, hey, you know a lot of stuff you're passionate about? It's just like a pile of poop. Really? Yeah, really. And, and, and just being around people that have a passion for Christ, it, it just makes their life look like a waste, a wreck. And they can't figure out why we don't do the things that they do. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, that, that, that they, we don't go along with them and their drinking and carousing and their parties and their idolatries and all this. They're surprised that we don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. They make fun of you because you don't go along with them and do what they do. Listen, beloved, this is so key and we're going to end with this concept this morning. And I don't want you to miss this, okay? So hang with me, please. 
Notice that Jesus didn't pray for the Father to take his disciples out of the world, but to protect them from the evil ruler of the world. Notice he says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, verse 15, but to keep them from the evil one. Who's that? That's Satan. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Jesus knew that, that Satan was doing everything in his power to accuse and attack believers in order to destroy our lives. You remember what it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that Satan would come before God day and night and be accusing the brethren. He's constantly accusing us. Oh, yeah, really? That's one of yours? <laughs> yeah, seriously? Nice. Messed up again, didn't he? That's what happened in the case of Job. Well, I, I should say God kind of picked that fight, right? Hey, Satan, did you see my, my servant Job? Sharp guy, man of integrity, nobody like him on the whole planet. Oh yeah, whatever, God. The only reason why he worships you and serves you, because you've given a cushy life. You just bless him all the time. Oh really? Have at it. Do whatever you want, just don't take his life. And I'll prove to you that he worships me, not because of all the stuff I give him, but because of who I am. And so he made his point with Satan, but the point is that he's accuser. He's, a, he's doing everything. So the reason, the reason why... See, why wouldn't God just, we get saved and boom, we go to heaven. That'd be cool, huh? The moment you get saved, boom, you got a one-way ticket to heaven. Eternal life, that's what it sounds like to me. Boom, instantly in heaven. Well, why doesn't God take us immediately to heaven after we come to Christ? Because he would have no witness for Christ in the world if that were the case. And so Jesus prayed that the Father would keep his followers safe while they accomplished the job, the mission that he gave them to do. And as we seek to be witnesses for Christ in this world, we need to not be conformed to this world because that hinders our, our witness for Christ. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he prayed that his followers would be in the world but not of the world. We'd be in the world but not of the world. Now I'm sure... Most of you are familiar with church history enough to understand the, the monastic movement, and it's kind of reared its head throughout church history, and basically, you know, certain groups of, of Christians over the generations have thought, well, the, the best way to avoid being conformed to the world or, or being corrupted by the world is to remove ourselves from the world. And, and so they encourage people a variety of ways to, to totally separate themselves from the world. Hey, let's go, let's go build a compound and put up 10-foot walls and keep the world out. Or let's go live in a cave like a hermit. Or let's, uh, let's, let's, go, let's, go, let's go join a monastery or a convent and, and we will have no contact with the outside world. And typically people in those contexts appear very, what? Pious and very spiritual. But there couldn't be anything more unbiblical than that. And I think this is a subtle danger that we need to guard against as a church. 
as Christians here in the 21st century, that, that, that we have a, uh, I guess we, I could say it this way, we, there's a natural propensity to have a monastic mindset. And while we, while we want to always guard the purity of the church and the purity of our families and the purity of our lives, we, we are not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world around us. And it's easy to view a church like this as a, as a safe haven, a place of, of refuge where we can escape the wickedness of the world and we can raise our families in safety with other like-minded Christians and this is like our, our holy huddle. And we feel safe here and this is our favorite place to be because we feel safe. And if we could, we'd stay here all week and never have to like go to Walmart and talk to anybody. we just have the food slipped under the door or something. Delivered. Furthermore, to avoid the increasing corruption in the public school system, uh, many of us choose to homeschool our kids or send them to private Christian school. We, we've done all of those things. We, we purposely join clubs and sports teams with other Christian families in order to avoid contact with unbelievers. And, and so in an effort to insulate ourselves from the world, we end up completely isolating ourselves from the world. And the next thing you know, you wake up and you have no contact or very little contact with unbelievers. And so we lose our ability and we fail at our responsibility to be salt and light in this world and in this community. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 talks about that God ordained that we would be salt, that we would be light. Listen, this church is not a Christian compound. designed to keep the world out. This is a training center. This is a equipping center that's designed to, to train you and equip you and to send you back into the world to proclaim and live the truth of God's word. In a world filled with unbelievers and, and, and lots of sin. And so Jesus was praying here that, that his followers would not Live in monasteries and convents and holy huddles, cloistered in isolation, but instead consumed with the mission of making Christ known in this world. It's not about isolation, brother, brothers and sisters. It is about infiltration. We should be infiltrating this world, this community with the gospel. And that means we need to be purposeful and intentional in order to fulfill this mission. We need to prayerfully and strategically build relationships with unbelievers. What are you talking about? I'm trying to avoid unbelievers. No, I'm saying go find some unbelievers and become their friends. Build relationships with them. Why? For the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. Some of us, we need to find ways to get around unbelievers. Listen, I, I'm speaking, I'm preaching to myself here. I, I sit in my office most of the week talking and counseling and studying the Bible and making phone calls and I run out to lunch with somebody in our church and very, I have very little contact with unbelievers. And it's not, that's just the nature of my job and my ministry. And so we need to think creatively like, hey, should I join the PTA? Should I 
join a gym so I can just be around unbelievers for an hour when I'm working out. Maybe I need to coach one of my kids' teams or join a club or befriend my neighbor or a coworker, a classmate or a teacher, a, a store clerk, a mailman, the hairdresser. I got the coolest email this week from someone in our church. And they said, hey, basically, we know that I'm assuming you probably get a lot of discouraging stuff, but I just wanted to encourage you. And and so they sent me an email that they had received from their hairdresser. And this is what the hairdresser had, had emailed to this member of our church. Quote, God has been doing some amazing things in my life. It was always a blessing when you sat in my chair because of your love for God God has gotten me where I am today. God is good. Being surrounded by people like you made me a believer. That's what should be happening with all of us. That should be happening to everybody that we're coming into contact with, right? That we're making an impact, that we're seeing that we love God and that they need to be a believer. And, and then this individual in our church said this, the solid, valid biblical teaching from which my soul and mind have feasted since coming to Lakeside in 2008 have worked to challenge and sanctify me in everyday life. We're going to get to that next time is this prayer of sanctification, but because this person was coming to this church and being taught the Word of God and being sanctified and growing more mature in Christ, she finds herself sitting in the hairdresser's chair and it's just coming out all over her. Right? That's just how it works. That this, again, is a means to an end. It's a means to an end. Beloved, listen. Jesus prayed that the Father would not take us out of this world. Did you get that? He, he, he prayed, I don't want you to take him out of this world. But some of us are guilty of taking ourselves out of the world. Jesus prayed that the Father would protect us as we seek to be witnesses in the world. But listen, some of us are not trusting God to protect us and our children as we seek to engage the world with the gospel. I will never forget, as long as I live, a a conversation, one of the saddest, scariest conversations I've ever had as the pastor of this church, it was years ago with a group of people who were concerned about bringing their kids to our student ministry because we were having kids from Montgomery High School come to our student ministry and, and they had tattoos and, and some of them had cigarettes, you know, sticking out of their ear here and, and, and they were just worldly kids, unbelieving kids. And, and we don't want our kids to be influenced by these ungodly kids and so we're not going to bring our kids to the youth group. And my jaw hit the floor, my wife starts crying and going, you guys missed the whole point of the church. How about your kids influencing those kids? You're missing out on this fact of it's not about them influencing your kids, it's about your kids influencing them. What a golden opportunity to be Christ, to share the gospel. We're not even having to go out there to find them. They're coming to us. And I love Jesus. Listen, Jesus is always the perfect example of all these principles we talk about. He's the perfect example of how to influence the world without being influenced by the world. How do you do that? How do you influence the world without being influenced by it? That's a challenge, isn't it? 
Well, Jesus had the perfect balance. Hebrews 7.26 says that he was separated from sinners, while at the same time, Matthew 11.19 says that he was a friend to sinners. He was separated from sinners. At the same time, he was a friend of sinners. We need to pray and ask God to give us that Christ-like balance. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to uh, study your word together. And Lord, it may have felt like at the end that we all got a, a, a godly kick in the shins, maybe, uh, because I think our church does tend to be this way, that we are working at counter purposes with what you're praying for us that you've left us here for a reason, and that's to reach this community with the gospel, to reach this world with the gospel. And sometimes we, we're probably too content just to be here together in, 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 our, in our safe place of worship and prayer and study. And Lord, I pray that you would stimulate our hearts and that you would help us as a church to become more uh, aggressive in our evangelism and how we reach out. And Lord, we know it's not a, an event it's not even a golf tournament or, or, or a, a kid's camp or some big rally. It's just us every day, all of us, individually, living out the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, in our schools. And people will notice. They, they have to notice. As we begin to be more conformed to Christ, they, they will have to notice. And Lord, that you would give us opportunities to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Give us boldness. Give us courage. Thank you that we can, we can start a mission or run a mission at the doorstep of hell and know that Jesus is praying for our protection the entire time. And so, Lord, help us to have that mindset, we pray for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.